The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of chapters 31 and 32. With a deadly silence, the plague creeps its way from an American missionary compound in China to a dockyard in Marseille to an island in the West Indies called St. Hubert. This island, with its plantains, cocoa, rubber trees, bamboo jungles, and steamy heat, is home to a tapestry of natives and an exotic destination for tourists. It is ruled by factions. Sir Robert Fairlam, the execrable governor, Kellett Redleg, the office boy turned shipping company owner and the scourge of the House of Assembly, George William Vertigan, Kellett's rival in the Assembly and owner of the island's largest chain of stores. The most recent contention among them? Whether to remove St. Hubert's rat catcher. Kellett says he's not needed. Vertigan says rats carry diseases. They call in the expertise of the Surgeon General, Inchcape Jones. Jones says that though rats do indeed carry plague and rat bite fever and probably leprosy, those diseases don't exist, and therefore can't exist, in St. Hubert. So, the catcher is dismissed, and the rat population of St. Hubert flourishes. A year and a half later, Jones receives a telegram that several crew members of a ship that had just departed from St. Hubert's shores have died of plague. A few days prior, when a local lighterman was smitten with delirium and buboes, Jones had declared that it couldn't be plague. His colleague Stokes disagreed. Maybe it couldn't be plague, but it most certainly was plague. Stokes demanded that it be openly admitted that the disease had come to St. Hubert, but Jones contended it was a sporadic case, and there was no use frightening everyone. One night, while George William Vertigan is enjoying cocktail hour at St. Hubert's pleasantest bar, the Ice House, he hears whispers that plague has come to the island. His first reaction is to declare that it would serve Redleg right— but his next is to dismiss the rumor, since everyone knows the West Indies climate prevents plague, a disease of which, two nights later, he was dead. When Gottlieb receives a letter from Stokes that plague has come to St. Hubert and might soon be leaping across the world, Gottlieb does not move, but continues instead to ponder the chemical structure of antibodies. Quote, he who had lived to study the methods of immunizing mankind against disease had little interest in actually using those methods. Unquote. But whether as a result of public demands that he come out of his scientific reverie and act, or McGurk's intimations that it was time to make the Institute famous, or an actual concern for the misery of the dying islanders, Gottlieb agrees to send Martin to St. Hubert to experiment with the use of phage in curing plague. He insists, though, that it must be a true experiment, with controls. Martin must use phage with only half his patients, so that he can make as complete a possible a determination of its value. Martin agrees, and Gottlieb sends a very eager and willing Sondalius along with him to do the big boom-boom and earn them credit in the papers. Martin is called to a meeting with the Board of Trustees of McGurk, 
where it becomes clear that they expect him to produce miracles. Channeling Gottlieb, Martin insists that they cannot let humanitarian spirit get the better of them. They must have a few real test cases. The board agrees, concluding that though the goal is saving humanity, they also want unmistakable credit for the saving. Sondalius thinks Martin's experiment heartless. He wants to use every resource they have at once with everyone. But he agrees to go along, consoling himself that he will wage war as Captain General of the Rat Killers. After three days of silent worrying that Martin is headed to a death-haunted isle, Leora announces a decision. She is going with him. She says Martin can inject her with his phage, and she'll be absolutely fine. He protests that they don't know she will be fine. But his argument is powerless against hers, that she has no life outside him, that if he gets sick, she must be there to care for him, and that, besides, she's going. The day before their voyage, Martin insists that Sondalius take his first dose of phage. Sondalius refuses, saying that until Martin agrees to give it to everyone in St. Hubert, he won't touch it. Then Gottlieb calls Martin to say his fascinating and soul-exposing farewells. He seeks Martin's validation that he was wise to take the directorship. He rages against his enemies. He begs Martin not to let his kind heart spoil his experiment. And he longs for this to be the one good thing to come of his directorship. The plague in St. Hubert spreads to the point that Inchcape Jones, against the fretting of the governor and those in the tourist trades, declares a quarantine. Then Martin, Sondalius, and Leora set sail on the St. Burian, with island gear and phage ampules in tow. With none of the romantic scenes of bands playing and crowds waving, the departure is discouragingly somber. As they pull away from the harbor, a taxi screeches onto the pier, and a feeble body runs out shakily. It is Gottlieb, who, when he does not find them, turns sadly away. Sondalius gives flavor to the voyage, singing on the deck, arguing politics with the boatswain, teaching the bartender how to mix drinks, holding parties for the children, and entertaining the ladies, including, to his regret, the annoying and unbearably smug Miss Gwilliam. With time to spend on Leora, Martin studies her, as if for the first time, and ponders his neglectfulness as a husband. When he tries to apologize to Leora for abandoning her to loneliness, she will have none of it. She won't allow him to indulge in self-pitying regret. And she thinks that as an attentive husband, he'd be so aggressively conscientious about it, he'd be unbearable. The two of them stand at the rail, feeling the spaciousness of the sea, and dream about the future. They will travel. They will go places. Later, back in their cabin, she watches him awkwardly stretched out and sleeping, and smiles, thinking how she loves him when he's frowsy. She curls up next to him, a thin little figure, and dreams of their travels to France. The next of my posts was called Gottlieb's Puzzling Moment. 
Last week, I mentioned member Carrie Ann's surprise that Gottlieb accepted the position as director of the Institute. I, too, was startled, first by the fact that he was even offered the position, and then by the fact that he took it. Gottlieb has been our best and most consistent representative of pure science. Since our first image of him, through Martin's eyes, wrapped in a black velvet cape with a silver star arrogant on his breast, he has maintained his stature as Martin's hero, as his conscience, as the force that helps to protect him from the temptations of success and to keep him ruthlessly focused on his work in the lab to discover the elemental nature of things. He has been the most passionate and poetic exponent of the religion of science. That is why, like with Leora's capitulation to material reward, I was surprised by his decision. But in other ways, Gottlieb does not at all project the image of a strong and unyieldingly virtuous hero. His ever-worsening physical frailty seems to mirror a weakness in his soul. He is not self-confidently immune to his enemies. He fears and resents them. He has a bitterness that betrays self-doubt. Also, the lack of worldliness that comes from insulation in a lab is consistent with his naivete about the responsibilities of the directorship. It seems he sincerely didn't know what he was getting himself into. It's not that he embraced a new role as a dinner-hosting, important person-flattering, letter-writing figurehead. He seems to have actually thought he could do all the work of the directorship in an hour a day. But I do have to say I was taken very aback in these chapters by what appears to be the depth of his insecurity. I simply could not believe his desperate plea to Martin for validation that his work has been worthwhile. The three words I mentioned that left me stunned were the last three in his farewell to Martin. If you do this, something will yet have come out of my directorship if but one fine thing could come, to justify me. The man who has scorned success, who has worshipped at the altar of his laboratory table, who has been, quote, so contemptuous of popular taste that after a lifetime of creation he should destroy everything he has done, lest it be marred and mocked by the dull eyes of the crowd, unquote, now expresses a need for something to justify him. I'm not sure whether Lewis intended the reader to perceive this as a betrayal of Gottlieb's soul, but it sure came across to me that way. It reduced him dramatically in stature, so that he seemed, indeed, like that frail, sad little man who walked away from the dock disconsolate. I had a lot of fun writing the last of my post to the Facebook group, which is an apology to Sondalius. Here's what I said about Sondalius back when Martin met him for the first time. Quote, Though Martin's eyes remain dreamily clouded in the presence of his hero, we are able to see through him. We watch him not inspire his audience with truths, but hypnotize them with incantations. When the crowd departs, Sondalius does not appear serene and self-satisfied, but lonely. With Martin's fawning attention, he comes alive again, looming over him with solar radiance. The same warrior who had spoken rapturously of his medical conquests 
looks to Martin for reassurance that the speech was all right, that his jokes went over, that people liked it. When Martin tries to engage him in meaningful conversation, Sandalius instead admires the ankles of a passing girl and wonders whether they will get good beer at the beer garden. Unquote. Well, after the most recent chapters, I have developed a real affection and admiration for Sandalius. I think my initial impression was partly right and partly wrong, and I'll explain both. But I was at least wrong enough that I believe I owe him an apology. Yes, Sandalius can be a bit clownish. He's a loud, boisterous, unrestrained, attention-seeking carouser. You can see that as a character flaw, or you can see him as possessing, in Lewis's words, a spicy, dripping richness altogether his own. Being myself on the more bookish and sober end of the personality spectrum, I think I was more instinctually inclined to condemn his vibrancy as a vice. And perhaps those qualities of his, combined with a Gottlieb-like religious devotion to science and truth, would indeed make him more admirable. But putting aside my own biases, I can now see him as categorically admirable nonetheless. My impression began to change with his unpretentious contentment to work as Martin's assistant. Quote, the change whereby Sandalius was turned from Martin's master to his slave was so unconscious, and Sandalius, for all his picker-boyian love of sensationalism, cared so little about mastery or credit that neither of them considered there had been a change. Unquote. I became even fonder when Gottlieb asked Sandalius whether he would accompany Martin to the death-haunted Isle of St. Hubert to help him eradicate plague, and, quote, Sandalius did not merely consent, he insisted, unquote. I began to love him for his fervent, even though perhaps misguided, desire to wield every weapon available to him to save humanity from his enemy plague. Quote, Sandalius wanted to exterminate all the rodents in St. Hubert, to enforce a quarantine, to use Yersin's serum and Hafkin's prophylactic, and to give Martin's phage to everybody in St. Hubert all at once, all with everybody. I admired his willingness, despite that fervency, to listen patiently and non-defensively to Martin's considered arguments. Quote, Sandalius still insisted that in this crisis, mere experimentation was heartless. Yet he listened to Martin's close-reasoned fury with enthusiasm which this bull-necked eternal child had for anything which sounded new and preferably true. He did not, like Almus Pickerbaugh, regard a difference of scientific opinion as an attack on his character. Unquote. What a rare quality. Perhaps most of all, I love the image of him storming the island and, dirty hairy-like, taking out all the vermin contaminating its people. Quote, And you watch me. I am the Captain General of Rat Killers. I used to walk into a warehouse and the rats say, There's that damn old Uncle Gustav. What's the use? And they turn up their toes and die. I am used as glad I have you people behind me, because I am broke. I went and bought some oil stock that don't look so good now, and I shall need a lot of hydrocyanic acid gas. Oh, those rats. 
You watch me. Now I go and telegraph I can't keep a lecture engagement next week. Huh. Me lecture to a women's college. Me that can talk rat language and know seven beautiful deadly kind of traps. Unquote. And his place in my heart was settled forever when he refused, on principle, to himself be injected with phage, unless everyone was. He will maintain his devotion to his own moral convictions, even at the risk of his own life. Quote, No, I will not touch it till you get converted to humanity, Martin, and give it to everybody in St. Hubert. And you will. Wait till you see them suffering by the thousand. You have not seen such a thing. Then you will forget science and try to save everybody. You shall not inject me till you will inject all my Negro friends down there, too. Unquote. So, I am sorry, Sondalius, for being blinded by my own biases. I will join you for a rum swizzle at the ice house any day. <laughs> <laughs>